Our passage this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Amen. Two weeks ago in our study of Romans chapter 7, we saw that those who are in Christ have died to the law, and as a result the law no longer has any hold on them. But then in verses 14 to 25 of chapter 7, we read Paul's vivid description of his constant struggle with the sinful nature. And as we left chapter 7, the subject of our sinful nature was very much to the fore. Then we come to the magnificent opening words of chapter 8. We've already referred to them this morning in the breaking of bread. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this declaration by Paul sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. Because the purpose of chapter 8 is to give assurance to these believers in Rome about the certainty and the completeness of their salvation. And it is no coincidence that the chapter begins on the note of no condemnation, and it ends in verse 39 on the note of no separation. And Paul now demonstrates that the eternal security of the believer is guaranteed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is summed up in verse 9, where Paul says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So as John Stott puts it, the hallmark of the authentic believer is the possession or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And not only is this a present reality in the life of a believer, but there is also a future aspect to the work of the Spirit. That's referred to in verse 11. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So with this background in mind, we now come to this morning's passage. Therefore, says Paul in verse 12, in the light of the present indwelling role of the Spirit and in the light of the future role of the Spirit in our resurrection, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, but by inference, to live according to the Spirit. So how do these believers and how do we fulfill this obligation to live not according to the sinful nature? Bearing in mind the struggle with the sinful nature described in chapter 7. Well, in these densely worded verses, Paul provides the answer, centered on the pivotal truth of sonship or adoption. And so in verse 15, Paul tells these Roman believers that they did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption. And this imagery of adoption is deliberately and carefully chosen. This will have a particular resonance for these believers living in Rome in the middle of the first century AD. Adoption was a common practice in Roman society, especially among the upper classes. Indeed, at the very highest level, nearly all the emperors were succeeded, not by their natural sons, but by their adopted sons. So Julius Caesar was succeeded by Augustus, who was his great nephew, but a son by adoption. Augustus, in turn, was succeeded by Tiberius, who was not a blood relation at all of Augustus, but a son by adoption. Tiberius was succeeded by Caligula, again a son by adoption. And as Paul was writing or dictating this letter to the church at Rome, Nero was on the imperial throne. Nero's predecessor was his great-uncle Claudius, who had adopted Nero as his son in AD 50. The main purpose of adoption in Roman society was to prevent a family from dying out. The head of a Roman family was known as the paterfamilias. If the paterfamilias died without leaving a son and heir, the family property was liable to be forfeited and the family would effectively become extinct. And this disaster could be prevented by the legal device of adoption. So the paterfamilias of one family 
could approach the paterfamilias of another family who had sons with a view to adopting one of those sons. And in the type of adoption that Paul seems to have in mind here, this involved a ceremony conducted before a magistrate. A Roman father had absolute power and control over all aspects of his children's lives. In earlier times, that even included the power of life and death. This absolute power and control was known as the patria potestas. And in the ceremony of adoption, the natural father would ritually sell his son into a form of short-term bondage to a third party known as an alienee. The alienee would then symbolically release the son back to the control of the natural father. The natural father would then sell the son into bondage a second time, either to the same alienee or to a different alienee. Again, that alienee would release the son back to the control of the natural father. Now, when the natural father sold his son into bondage a third time, the power and control that he had over his son, the patria potestas, was deemed to have been broken. The current alienee would then strike a set of scales with a bronze ingot and declare his ownership of the son. At this point, or subsequently, the would-be adoptive father would then present a claim of ownership in respect of the son. And with no opposition from the natural father or the alienee, the adoption of the son would be complete. Now, Paul's readers would be familiar with this elaborate ceremony. And the spiritual lessons to be learned would be obvious. They would know that the son who had been adopted had passed from the patria potestas of his natural father into the patria potestas of his adoptive father. And in chapter 6, Paul has already taught that these believers had passed from being slaves to sin to being slaves to God. They would also know that by adoption, all legal links with the son's natural family were severed. And in the same way, they were now members of a new family. As Paul will tell them shortly, they are sons of God. And perhaps the most meaningful lesson of all not only did an adopted son acquire all the rights and privileges of a natural, fully legitimate son, but an adopted son was actually in an even more secure position than a natural son. A natural son could at any time, in theory, be given up for adoption. An adopted son, on the other hand, could never be given up for adoption. And so we have a powerful illustration of the eternal security 
of the believer. Now, we said earlier that these verses provide the answer to the question of how we fulfill our obligation to live not according to the sinful nature. Well, if we start in verse 15 and work backwards, Paul's chain of thought is as follows. If, according to verse 15, we have received the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption, we are sons of God. And that is confirmed by verse 14. And the mark of the sons of God is that they are led by the Spirit of God. Again, that's confirmed by verse 14. And in verse 13, if we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit of God, we will be able to put to death or mortify the misdeeds of the body. And if we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will be able to fulfill our obligation in verse 12, to live according to the Spirit, as opposed to living according to the sinful nature. Some years ago, Paul Mallard spoke at the Keswick Convention, and he used this illustration. He described being on holiday in the north of Scotland and going out in a boat with a crab fisherman. He watched as the fisherman pulled up his lines. The little crabs he threw back into the sea. But with the big ones, he was extremely careful in the way he handled them. He explained that you really did not want to get a finger caught in one of those claws unless you wanted to end up with a broken finger. Paul Mallard then asked what you should do if you find yourself in that situation. The answer was to smash the crab against the hull of the boat forcibly and repeatedly until the creature was utterly destroyed. Then and only then would you be able to release your finger? The challenge of these verses for us is to consider how seriously we take the problem of indwelling sin and ask ourselves what we are going to do about it. This is something on which the Puritans placed great emphasis. John Owen in particular stressed the importance of killing sin. And what Paul is doing here is showing that the more deeply these believers appreciate their identity and their standing as adopted sons of God, the less powerful will be the pull of their sinful nature and the greater will be their ability to deal with that sinful nature and put to death the misdeeds of the body. And all this is possible by the leading of the Spirit, leading us away from sinful habits. 
And this is showing us another aspect of the ministry of the Spirit, which is presented throughout this chapter. And it also reminds us of verse 4 of chapter 7, where we saw that the whole point of dying to the law was in order that we might bear fruit to God. But now we need to go back to verse 15, back to the spirit of adoption. And in the second half of verse 15, Paul tells his readers that by this spirit of sonship, this spirit of adoption, they can cry, Abba, Father. An Aramaic word followed by a Greek word. Perhaps the suggestion is that God's new family is composed of those from a Jewish background and those from a Gentile background. Abba, Daddy, the word a little child would use to address his or her father. Abba, Father, the same form of address the Lord Jesus used when praying to his father. And the Abba, Father, brought about by adoption into God's family, introduces a new level of intimacy in man's dealings with God. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. The emphasis is on his holiness, his separateness. But in the New Testament, there is a new dimension. Believers are encouraged to draw near to God and address him as Abba, Father. In this little book, A Diary of Private Prayer, John Bailey captures this sense of intimacy. And in one of his prayers, he says, Here am I, O God, of little power and of mean estate, yet lifting up heart and voice to thee, before whom all created things are as dust and a vapor. Thou art hidden behind the curtain of sense, incomprehensible in thy greatness, mysterious in thine almighty power. Yet here I speak with thee familiarly, as child to parent. And now there is another chain of thought flowing from our sonship, from our adoption. This time we don't have to work backwards, we just go forwards. If we can address God as Abba, Father, using the language of a child, it follows that we are God's children. That's verse 16. And if we are God's children, then we are heirs of God. Verse 17. And if we are heirs of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. Verse 17 again. And this introduces us 
to yet another aspect of the Spirit's ministry. That is the witnessing of the Spirit. We have had the leading of the Spirit. Now we have the witnessing of the Spirit. And so we read in verse 16 that the Spirit himself testifies or bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. Here again, Paul may be drawing on the ceremony of adoption, which we described earlier. Because that ceremony, with its symbolic selling and releasing of the adoptive son, had to be performed in the presence of at least five witnesses. And on the death of the adoptive father, when the son came to claim his inheritance, if any doubts were raised about the validity of the adoption, those doubts could be dispelled by calling these witnesses to testify that the requirements of the adoption process had been duly met. This raises the question, how does the Spirit testify or bear witness with our spirit? And the essence of it seems to be that the Spirit of God gives us a deep sense of God working in our hearts, convincing us of the Father's acceptance of us as his children. We learn to discern our own spirit telling us that we are children of God. And we also discover that this inner voice of assurance is prompted by the Holy Spirit himself. We are assured and convinced of our status as God's children through the witnessing of the Spirit. And then we come to the final verse, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have seen that the whole point of the adoption process was to provide an heir. An heir is one who inherits. And Paul rounds off this little passage with a forward look to our inheritance. First, we are heirs of God. Most commentators seem to think that this means that God himself is our inheritance. In the book of Deuteronomy, when the land of Canaan was being divided up among the tribes of Israel, the priestly tribe of Levi was excluded. The explanation is given in Deuteronomy 18, verse 2. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance. Then secondly, we are co-heirs with Christ. We know from the opening book, the opening verses of the book of Hebrews, that God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And so it seems that this inheritance that we are to share with Christ is limitless. But according to verse 17, it will include sharing in the glory of Christ. 
This is going to involve the glorification of our bodies. These bodies that at the moment are anything but glorious. These bodies that are marked by physical and moral frailty. These bodies that are plagued by the sinful nature. And this body of death from which Paul wished to be rescued in chapter 7 will be no more. And through this glorification of our bodies, we will be like Christ. The most detailed examination of the resurrection body in the New Testament is found in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. But we have to note that our inheritance is conditional. We are fellow heirs with Christ only if we are fellow sufferers with him. Remember the Lord's words to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Or Paul's words to the Philippians, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. There is a clear pattern in Scripture. Suffering is the precursor of glory. These Christians in Rome may well have been suffering, but more suffering was on the way. In a few years' time, much of Rome would be destroyed by fire, and the Christians would be blamed. The reprisals would be dreadful. They would indeed share in Christ's sufferings. And yet in verse 18, Paul confirms that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But that will be part of next week's study. For now, in this little cluster of verses in Romans chapter 8, using the metaphor of adoption, Paul has affirmed our status and our identity as God's children. In a string of familial expressions, he has shown that we are sons of God. We are God's children. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. Through the leading of the Spirit, as sons of God, we can overcome the sinful nature. Through the witnessing of the Spirit to the fact that we are God's children and as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, we can look forward to our inheritance and to the glory that is to come. And in response, we can do no better than adopt the words of the Apostle John 
in the third chapter of his first letter. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God.